Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. You're on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I mean to plant a flag in the sand for conscious, willful people to gather, organize, empathize, and capsize the established order of things. Our opposition? Team Machine, Team Capitalism, Team Algorithm, Team No Team, I'm my own team. Being human is a team sport, so thanks for playing. Playing for Team Human today sociologist and criminal justice scholar, Sarah Lagasse. We're getting told all the time that if we don't Google someone, if we don't search for them, if we don't plug their name into some criminal record database, we're irresponsible citizens. And that's what these websites and these data brokers, this is what their kind of capital is. Sarah will be showing us how online crime data creates a whole new form of digital punishment, especially for those who should never have been branded criminals at all. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. I feel like it's been a crazy busy time for a whole lot of us right now. I guess that's the beginning of the new school year, fiscal year. And there's a lot to report. Uh, I guess most simply, we're doing uh, great with our uh, kind of subscriber drive for people to join and support Team Human, which you can do by going to teamhuman.fm and clicking on support. We've got a drip campaign, a Patreon campaign, ways to subscribe and uh, participate on our forums, get access to a speak pipe through which you can ask questions on the show, uh, get signed books. We're even selling Team Human t-shirts, ethically made, right at teamhuman.fm. So please come check it out, support the show if you can, or at least uh, come play with us. I had a 
moment of excitement when I saw that there was a new uh, ETF. It's an exchange-traded fund. It's basically a, a stock market mutual fund with low fees, this thing called an ETF, that was started by a group of multimillionaires like uh, Deepak Chopra and Ariana Huffington, uh, ones with you know some progressive uh, social intentions, that they had created this new way of investing in companies that are doing social good. So people with, you know... IRAs or retirement money, not even necessarily other billionaires, but regular people who are trying to save for their retirement can do it in a way that's not just contributing to the destruction of everything they hold near and dear. And I was really about to celebrate that, and I was going to write this monologue about what this thing was until I looked at the thing, and the top holdings are polluting chip makers like Intel and Texas Instruments, obesity enablers from Pepsi to Yum Brands. Those are the people that own like uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken and stuff. And surveillance firms like Alphabet, which is Google, or propagandists like News Corp. So it's not a list of socially good companies at all. It's just this list of the biggest companies in the world with a filter that weeds out the ones that refuse to even nod in some way to labor or community responsibility or green production or reduction of the slavery imprint. Yes, slaves still make our stuff, but that's another topic. And it's a laudable direction to encourage, but these companies really they don't count as responsible investments you know pepsi sells diabetes chevron's on there they're an extractive energy company i mean okay so what if the companies they let their employees volunteer one day a month to build playgrounds in poor neighborhoods or they offer free power outlets for electric cars in the parking lot. You know, that's the kind of stuff that earns them points to get on this list. But it doesn't make up for any of the company's primary impacts on the world. Or, as I'd argue it, the greater damage to the economy and the planet that's caused by this whole style of investing, of pouring money into shareholder value. It's just the same old S&P 500, but with a few of the most egregious perpetrators of crimes against humanity taken out. And then it's ranked by an algorithm for appropriate behavior. So I guess the idea is viewed in the very best light that an algorithm like this that's ranking companies' social impact, that it would kind of gamify corporate behavior so that everyone's competing to be on the top spot. And as they're competing, they all start doing better and better. You know, they can all strive to be as socially good as Intel, which is now the top company on the thing. Because whenever I'm thinking of what company in the world is doing the most social good, I think that's got to be Intel. You know, but the, the just capital list, it's really less this impetus for good behavior than it's uh, an excuse for their bad behavior. It's like there's a difference between compensatory good, like Mark Zuckerberg saying he's going to give 90% of his shares to charity someday, or Pepsi building a, a, a single zero emissions Lay's potato chip factory, and an intrinsic good, where the actual business in which the company is involved is a positive force. You know, and I wanted to think of just capital as a start. 
You know, wouldn't it be nice to be aligned with the world's richest progressives or supposed progressives? But I don't think it is. I think it's just a way of enabling the same old bad behavior. And not just from the companies themselves, but from people who've got hordes and hordes of capital who want to invest it in ways that make it grow, even though they're providing no value to anyone with all this money. Remember, when you buy a stock, you're not investing in a company. You're not helping them build some new factory. You're just giving money to the last person who owned that stock before you. You know, and moreover, if you really want to talk about ethical behavior, using money in this way, it simply fuels the ownership of our world by fewer and fewer people. It's increasing the power of capital while taking it away from the land and labor that everyone's supposedly trying to save. An ETF, no matter what it's investing in, it's just exacerbating the division's of wealth, and not simply because the investors are getting rich, but because of the way that shareholding amasses power at the top. This is the same sort of play that Ariana Huffington did when she sold the Huffington Post to AOL, and all the writers who had created the empire realized they weren't going to participate in any of the spoils. That's the way capitalism works. And I don't think we really should be able to expect anything else from this brainchild of Paul Tudor Jones. He's the billionaire hedge fund manager who made all this money shorting the markets before the 1987 Black Monday crash. And maybe he was lying awake one night thinking about, well, what kind of harm did all that shorting do? And didn't my shorting of the markets actually make the crash kind of Worse? I mean, like his investors, he somehow needs to prove to himself that this model of investing in mega corporations and giant indexes, that it isn't fundamentally flawed, that that it can be somehow gently coaxed back toward social good without any billionaires having to give up their fortunes or question this passive way that they keep growing them. I guess the most positive thing about the Just Capital Fund is that it's it's proven that companies that treat their workers and communities with some modicum of respect, that they end up showing better returns than the ones who just do pure evil. That's the pitch to investors anyway. You will make more money long term if you invest in companies that have managed to do a little bit less polluting or a little bit less indiscriminate exploitation. So here, without doing anything truly good, you can sort of hack or leverage the social good effect. You don't have to change the underlying power structure at all between the wealthy and the poor. Best of all, you don't have to question the integrity of the game you've been playing to maintain your disproportionate share of the world's wealth. You know, this is not social good. I guess, as the name of the whole operation betrays, this is just capital. It's time to intervene on behalf of humans. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. I'm delighted to have Sarah Lagesson with us today. She's a new professor at Rutgers University in New Jersey, looking at the real impact of data and technology 
on the ability of both criminals and the wrongly accused to, uh, to clear their names and get on with their lives. I'm Andy Bickelmom, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Melissa Court, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Ben Tarnoff, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Dana Boyd, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Stako Tromkoso from the Peer to Peer Foundation, and I'm on Team Human. We're Team Human, coming to you, alive, from the Basement Media Squad, home to the Laboratory for Digital Humanism at CUNY Queens College. Our guest today, Rutgers professor, sociologist, and criminal justice scholar, Sarah Lagesson. Sarah Lagesson is an assistant professor at the Rutgers University Newark School of Criminal Justice. Her upcoming book, Digital Punishment, Uses and Abuses of Criminal Records in the Big Data Age, will be available to everyone in when around, you think? Probably not till the spring or summer. The spring or summer. It's making its way through. So, you know, as I read, and I have, thank you, an early, uh, uh, an early draft of this book, as I read it, I started to feel like data is just a gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> you know, it's people are are punished by data in in a number of ways. I was trying to codify it. I mean, and you do it better than I could, but there's like the there's the intentional record that you create of somebody, which is a form of punishment. You did this bad thing and we're going to remember it, so you get that stigma. Then there's that sort of indelibility of data, which is almost an unintended side effect, that it's so indelible, even if it's wrong, it's indelible. Then there's the errors that go into it. And then there's this sort of, the hardest part to understand is that the the systemic reinforcement of stuff, Mm -hmm. that you think you're using some kind of neutral data system, but no, it's kind of not. And the only way that I have to relate to it, you know, is sort of like with credit reports and things. But this is like credit reports times a zillion. Credit reports times 10 to the billionth. So, I mean, where to even where to even start? I guess is with is with this notion of of punishment. Are you more concerned with the kind of the intentional ways that data is used to punish us or these sort of unintended consequences that we don't even know about? It's a good question. I mean, I think that what's happening in data-driven criminal justice is reflective of what's happening in old-school criminal justice. So the systemic problems in the criminal justice system are reflected in digital punishment the same way. Um that we might think of racial disparities, class-based disparities, access to justice. But what's different now is that there's a lot more players in the game. So it's not just that the court decides that you're guilty of something and then gives you a punishment and you serve your sentence or you pay your fines. Now there's a lot of other people and companies um, and interests at play here. Everything from the data brokers all the way to employers are just like new people that you meet or people uh, if you're trying to date online, right? And, and all of a sudden this arrest or this conviction from a long time ago becomes um, active again. So punishment now is just sort of sort of never goes away and it, and it pops up in unexpected and very troubling ways for the people that are impacted by it. 
So you never get your fresh start. You don't, and the whole justice system in a theoretical sense is is based on that notion, right? That you pay some sort of uh, sentence and, and you're atoned in some sort of way. And there's even, you know, policy activity about expungements or record sealing. Um, but the wholesale kind of digitization and release of all this criminal justice data really undermines a lot of our other rehabilitative efforts. Well, and there's big business in it, right? There's really big business. So you said credit reports, and I think that's a really good parallel. So credit reports are governed by the Fair Credit Reporting Act, which means, you know, when credit credit reporting started, it was very disorganized and the information was incorrect and people couldn't buy a house, they couldn't buy a car, get a bank loan. Finally, regulators said, okay, this is not working. We get to just put this really powerful report in the hands of organizations that we're going to oversee. So that means that if I get my credit report done, I am entitled to a copy of it. And if there's something wrong on it, there's a, a steps I can take, a grievance process that's written down, and I can I can try to assert some control over the information. Right. It might be really, really, really hard anyway. Yes. But at least it's down on paper. Right. And at right. least there's been some acknowledgement of how powerful this record is and why we should care. Criminal records, on the other hand, are bought and sold like crazy in these massive data markets. And that's because it's really cheap information to get. And there's good reasons for why criminal record information is in the public record. It's, you know, kind of under the philosophical roots of transparency and our ability to watchdog the courts and law enforcement to see who's getting arrested and make sure trials aren't happening in private. But it used to take a lot of work to access that stuff. So companies weren't going to go and send a bunch of court runners to a basement and, and pay for paper copies of records. That would be a lot of work. But now you can just go online. You can scrape it. You can buy it from a lot of state court systems. You can copy and paste photos from a law enforcement jailhouse roster and then fold all that information together in this unregulated sphere that's very different than credit reporting and then buy it, sell it, share it, post it. Um, and it's hard to, to kind of figure out where it all goes. And isn't it, isn't the, the I guess, the purported reason why that data is accessible, even if it, I have to pay 45 bucks for it, mm-hmm. is because I'm going to hire somebody who's going to have their hands in my cash box or is going to be supervising my kids or I want to, you know, or coaching my little league team. Did this guy ever molest somebody? Did he steal money? Did he do something violent? Mm-hmm. And that is, um, you know, there there is a, a branch of background checking that is under this Fair Credit Reporting Act guidelines. So so there are background check companies that, that companies use, uh, employers use, to get a report. And, and the same guidelines kind of carry over to that, right? So if I'm an, a, a job applicant and I do have a criminal conviction, um, I have a right to also see the background check that my potential employer is getting. And we can talk about what that conviction means and we can put some context around it. The problem with the unregulated versions of criminal records, so this is like going to a website that posts booking photos, or this is like going to what are called people search engines that these pop-ups come up and they say, you can't use this information to do an employment check or any sort of verification. This is just for public interest. I mean, those are a lot cheaper and a lot easier to get access to. Now, a big company, a big employer would never take a risk like that, right? Because that we that might result in some discriminatory hiring. Right, but if I'm trying to figure out who's going to watch my laundromat overnight... There you go. I'm not going to hire some big company. I'm going to look, oh, let's look at this guy. He got arrested for stealing out of a laundromat. Right, and then you might say, I'm not going to hire him because no. uh, he just doesn't have the qualifications, right? You don't need to use the record Why as, would I if I'm not allowed to? Right, right. 
Oy. Yeah. So and then so that it's not only that it's there and and but it also might be wrong. Yeah. This is what interested me in this topic in the first place. So I was doing work at a nonprofit helping people navigate employment and housing after they had a felony conviction. And and so And I even want to know, I mean, I guess it's an aside, but how do you end up doing that? <laughs> I mean, you were just question. a person. You were doing radio and and yeah. bluegrass music right. studies and stuff, right? Uh, well, my mom is a police officer, and so oh, she's a, co- a regular cop. She's a regular. Does she cop. wear blue? She did. She did. She's retired now, but she uh, she didn't become a cop till she was thirty six years old. Wow! So I knew so her. So she did in both basic lives. training or whatever it's called. It's like thirty five. Yeah, yeah. Was, she's an amazing person, mm-hmm. and so the justice system and all the complexity. To, complexities of it became part of our kind of dinner table conversations uh-huh. when I was, uh, you know, elementary school, junior high. So I was very interested in, in kind of the social justice aspects of the system, but also, you know, I, I, w- I was very close to a lot of people who were officials in the system. So, so I had the benefit of having this kind of balanced approach and, and things were demystified for me. Um, what I didn't realize until I was out searching for my first job after college was how many people were in prisons. The term mass incarceration was was pretty new at that point. And, and abstract even. Yeah. yeah. And, and it really obscures all this other stuff that's happening in the justice system uh, by focusing on people who've gotten to that felony conviction and, and prison sentence, which is, which is a small proportion of, of people who are arrested, let's say, which is 11 to 14 million people a year. And so... You know, we were doing this work, and, and I realized that while it was really important, we were focused all the way on the back end of the system. So after someone had served their sentence, and, and we knew the felony conviction had this, this big stigma. But what I started to realize that was that the actual record, we just kind of counted it as like a zero one. Like, does someone have a record or not have a record? And we never really looked at the records themselves. Mm-hmm. And we were trying to help people navigate what their record meant. And if you actually look at them, they're really incomplete, they're really messy. They're they're so almost purposefully abstract so that if you have a record and you look at it, it doesn't make sense. You're not even going to try to deal with it. And you're also dealing with a lot of other hard stuff at the same time. And so I, I began to research this in earnest. And, and I have um, a lot of research participants who would bring their, their records in and we'd sit down and go through it. And it's just incredible. There's mismatched identities. There's there's wrong time, wrong place. There's just final dispositions missing. So an employer might get an official background check through the FBI and all of this disposition, meaning that case outcome, it's missing. So they're going to think, you know, this guy didn't show up for court. He's a, he's a wanted fugitive because he's got this open case from 1997 that just sits there. And, and it's it, just because nobody entered that he was innocent. Yeah, either. it's a, just a silly, stupid data entry error that has enormous consequences. So you started working as a volunteer? I was in the AmeriCorps. So yeah, so I was a it was a government program, but I was a volunteer to this nonprofit. This was in Minneapolis. And then you were working with the the victims of bad data? Yeah, that was you know, the this became more of an interest once I I became um, a graduate student and then now a professor. And I had an initial interest in sort of public perceptions of the criminal justice system. And I, I think this kind of came from my own background of, of having yeah. this insider view and then telling people I work in prisoner reentry. People said, well, why would you work with, these, you know, these felons? They'd use these awful labels. And it just was very disorienting for me because these people were great, right? They were, they were just 
people who had families and who were dealing with really complicated systems. Um, and so, so that, uh, my research career kind of led me towards thinking about public perceptions and then forgiveness and, and criminal record expungement. But I just kept getting stuck on, on the data itself and, and how even if you cleaned up your actual criminal government record, all these websites were posting at the same time. And I just didn't understand how that was legal. I didn't understand why it wasn't regulated. I didn't understand, most importantly, what people could do about it. And I got tired of having to answer that question with an I don't know. So thus began this this book project. And you found out? And I found out that there is a compelling and important reason for why criminal record information should be somewhat in the public sphere. We want to know if police are arresting certain groups at certain rates. Right. And we also, but also in, in the sense of um, good old fashioned suburban fear, everyone wants to know if there's a child molester living on their block. Right. That was, I think, the next big thing I learned was that when information that used to be based on paper, so like a wanted poster or a court record, became digital and law enforcement agencies and courts were trying to figure out how to do public notification in a digital environment, they just kind of put everything out there. And a lot of, this is where you get the private actors, these software companies who come in and say, you need help with your data infrastructure. Also, you could have um, a a roster of everyone who you've arrested for um, a prostitution offense. Very common thing to do, uh, notifications. Okay, we'll do it. Well, you know, the local government agency and the software company didn't quite realize sometimes that that would get indexed by Google, right? And so you have all these different phenomena happening at the same time. Search engine optimization is getting better and better. It's easier than ever to post massive amounts of digital photos and digital data. Companies are realizing they can sell this data to other data brokers. And so you kind of have these three overlapping patterns happening. Um, And right in the middle of it is the person whose life is just kind of falling apart because all three of these different entities have a different stake in their data and they have no control over it. Well, I mean, in... through a media theory lens or a media ecology lens even, they moved into an environment with perfect memory. Yeah, right. Or certainly indelible memory, if not perfect. Right, right. And this has been kind of the issue I've been grappling with, which is I often get this pushback, well, this is just Pandora's box and there's nothing we can do. It's all out there already. And certainly a lot of the people that I've interviewed for this book who's booking photo or arrest record. And we have to remember a lot of the stuff that's online are not convictions. These are just arrests and charges. Well, right. But that how else can we can we turn on TV and find out that Nick Nolte crashed his car right. into a tree? Right, right. So yeah, I guess that's you kind of like get the that fourth picture. thing. Yes. There is <laughs> such a public appetite. And and you know, there's there's all these apps and websites where neighbors can comment on the crime in their neighborhood and when we have such access to a booking photo, it, it adds such a such an allure to the kind of yeah. voyeuristic side of all of this. But it's uh, a lot of the people I interview, you know, they just say, I, I don't want to deal with it. The Pandora's box has been opened. It makes me feel like sick. It triggers all these traumatizing events that led to this arrest. I, I don't want to revisit it. So I don't use the Internet. I don't I don't apply for jobs on the, the regular job market. I don't have the protection of a lease because I have an under the radar lease. Right. So there's all these ways that people opt out of kind of institutional bonds that that make for a safer life, that make for better public safety. If that's we want people to go back to work, we want people to live in safe housing. They opt out of all of that because they're terrified of their digital reputation. Right. But then you end up 
if if you believe as as I do and and the data shows that okay so poor people people of color marginalized groups are arrested more mm-hmm. than other people so now they're more likely to have one of these weird records yeah. and then going to be further marginalized and then their kids are going to be further marginalized and then they're going to be more likely to be arrested and so on and that's right and it I, keeps going yeah the the cyclical nature of this and, and restructuring inequality is just really, really stark. And it's hard to measure, right? Because the phenomenon I'm talking about, this opting out of things, that's you, – you can't do a survey on that, right? It's hard to get this data on that because well, it's sort of Because they've opted out. Exactly. And they end up at the at the dollar discount buying their stuff and they mm-hmm. end up at the, the – not even the Western Union but the crazy places to cash a check or something. Right, right. right. And so – it, but it's it's just so real when you when you get the stories from people. Um, it's just it's sort of heartbreaking. It's also there's a technological capital thing. So one thing that we know from a lot of research is that being comfortable with technologies is a social class education based skill set. And so if I'm pulled over with you know I have educational training and, and I'm comfortable with technology. If my booking photo shows up after an arrest, well, I'm going to write a really serious letter to the owner of that. And I'm, I might hire a lawyer. I might hire a reputation management company to help me change my search results. That's not going to happen for people who are entangled in all these other institutional systems and don't have those resources. Right. The same as, but, and you know, not to overgeneralize, but they're also the same people. They're not going to be able to afford a tutor for their kid to take the SATs and every other thing that certain classes use to maintain their, their class immobility in a supposedly meritocratic society. Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly right and it's and it's really hard because you know you've you've pointed to this before there is a, a culture of fear in in the United States especially and there's also a sensationalization of crime. So people's sense of personal risk is is sort of overblown if you compare it to the declining violent crime rate or if you even you know look at where people live and and report their how likely they are to be victimized. And part of this, I really think, is that we're getting told all the time that if we don't Google someone, if we don't search for them, if we don't plug their name into some criminal record database, we're irresponsible citizens, right? We are not good consumers. And that's what these websites and these data brokers, this is what their kind of capital is, is to play into that. Right. And the more, it's a funny thing, is like the more we use things like Uber Mm -hmm. that create these really temp job, nightmarish, no reputation, no community around our interactions, then the more we're going to depend on those sorts of databases for, is this person reliable enough to do this, you know, task rabbit thing for me? Right. And we're further and further removed from, who is this person? Yeah, there's such, it's such decontextualized information. And, and, and we know that it's not, it's not always accurate too. So it's a misrepresentation in a whole bunch of ways. And, and also to use the justice system as a proxy for someone's character is really problematic because that means you've got a lot of faith in the justice system, right? And and I think that we have a lot of reasons to to have our doubts there. So so that is not the institution that I want to use for my person review, right? That's 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 not really helpful. We know it's a system that that treats people differently based on who they are. On TV though. Mm-hmm. It looks like, <laughs> like on Law and Order, they pretty much only convict really bad people played by the mean actors. 
And then on like shows like, I mean, that maybe gives away my age, but like on Oz or something mm-hmm. where you see inside the prison, it's like, well, shoot, anybody who's spent more than 30 days in one of those places is someone I'm scared of already mm-hmm. just because they were, you know, killing or raping or shanking or whatever they do in there. Yeah. So then everybody, it's like there's there's a fear now. It's almost the opposite. It's like if you've done your time, then definitely stay away. Right. And I think there's... There's a bit of a, a misunderstanding, I think, in the public, and I totally misunderstood this too, of what the different stages of the justice system really mean. And and if you have gotten to a point of incarceration, and there's a lot of wrongful convictions and there's a lot of issues there, but let's say you've gotten there, you know, your arrest has passed some sort of constitutional muster. A judge has looked at it. You've either, you've talked at least to an attorney for, sometimes it's only five minutes, but you've, there's, there's, things in the system that are supposed to kind of check on the validity of this so-called crime before you're incarcerated. And we have the biggest, you know, per capita incarceration, incarcerated population in the world. So it's, that's its own issue. But, but that's, you know, uh, it's a couple million people. Um, There's estimates about, I did an analysis about 6 million people with a felony conviction. Those convictions are available online. uh, Very easy for the public to access. Not all states makes everything uh, equally as available. But we're talking about the 11 to 14 million people, depending on the year, that are arrested. And that arrest results in in your name, your address, your physical description, and your photograph showing up on a website as arrested. Well, first of all, as a user, I'm going to think you're guilty. I don't really care. I don't know how the system works. Right. That's not my job. Wrong place. You know, it's you were doing something wrong. Right. right? But that's not how policing works. So arrests are really just the outcome of police discretion. That's all it is, right, is, is that somebody's making a really hard, cops have hard jobs, they're making a tough decision about public safety, about the mandates they have from their department on how and where they should be policing, and that's why you get arrested, right? We're not arresting everyone who's breaking a law. That would be, it would be impossible, right? So, right. So we have such faith in this data as like, oh, it's, you know, it's real government data, it's so serious, and, and law and order makes it look so smooth, right? But... But the reality is it's this messy, bureaucratic... Imagine, like, the worst office job you've ever had. Like, that's being, you know, a a court clerk, right? It's just paperwork nightmare, database nightmare, data, old-school data entry stuff. And so so we just put a lot of stock in it. And and if you break apart the system as law enforcement, courts, corrections, probation, that data becomes really meaningless. It's just reflecting the work that's doing in the office. It doesn't mean you're a good or bad person. Right. But you get treated like a good or bad person you after do. that. That's right. And it is interesting. It's like, okay, Joe smokes pot. He's fine, whatever. Pete smokes pot and got arrested for it. And now Pete's like in some other category. Mm-hmm. Well, because why did he get arrested? He must have been doing it in some bad way or in the wrong place or in front of somebody wrong. Or... Right. But maybe he doesn't have an apartment where he lives alone or he doesn't right. own a car, right? Maybe he's at a park. Maybe he's black. Right. Uh, maybe he's in a neighborhood that's doing an initiative that is, the police are focused on on marijuana violations that week. Right. I mean, there's like such a randomness. Or whatever. Yeah. Yes. And so, and so that's why it's just, it's difficult to, to grapple with the fact that, you know, I had a phone call with someone today who, who grew up in India, moved to the U.S. to get his MBA. Gets a, a really great job. He's in Arizona. And he's making six figures. He's happy. He's married. Him and his wife get in a fight. So they're not super familiar with the U.S. justice system. She calls the police because it's getting heated. 
okay, that happens, right? So the police come and they're mandated that the partner, one of the partners has to be taken out of the home right. in the cooling off period. He's like, that's fine. So he goes, he goes to a jail, sits there for three hours, goes home. This is two years ago. Since then, he's lost that job. Uh, him and his wife separated. He's obviously not dating because he's terrified of his Google search results. His whole life has started to crumble and he just told me, he said, it's not because of this photo, but but the photo has become this catalyst for me being afraid to fix my life or to move on in all these different ways. Mm. And he just, it was just so stunning, I think, if, if you're from a community like his where he's just, he's not comfortable in the justice system. He's not used to being in a neighborhood that's over-policed and so that maybe you're, you know, you get stopped and, and searched and you just kind of have grown up with it. This is, this was a totally traumatizing, shocking thing. And then two years later, this, this photo comes up and he's like, wait, what? And it, and just to, to kind of talk through, that was on my way here today. I had a phone call with him and, and just to talk through that and to, to realize that this little, this one little thing that went wrong can, can follow you forever is, is what's the hard part for me to kind of accept. And it's a, it's a, uh, Although they're experiencing it much worse than we are, it's a it's a symbol or a metaphor or an example of what's happening to all of us. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no, I mean, right? We're recording this. It's you know Rosh Hashanah, and mm-hmm. and and the beauty of Rosh Hashanah and the whole week between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur is you give up all your debts and all yeah. your stuff. Yes. It's like so you start over. Okay, good. It's like a jubilee yes. of sort. And. And there's even rules in in Talmud. You're not allowed to talk to someone about their childhood, about their past. It's against the rules because they're a new person now. You can't say, "Oh, I remember back when you were this, <laughs> you did these." It's Im- not just embarrassing, but it's like it it it's anti life. It's anti. I mean, human. The mm-hmm. whole show is about being alive. It's not a living thing. Mm-hmm. It's it's as if you're unchangeable, as if it's yeah. permanent. You know, and, and data, even though it seems so fungible, data is so much more permanent than biology, than life, than than culture. Yeah, it doesn't mirror the human experience at all. I mean, first of all, it robs you of dignity because it ties you to someone else's definition of you in a very right. real, indelible way. It also, this thing I've been learning through this project, especially interviewing the people that run websites or the, the people that represent the big companies that, that use and sell and, and post this, these, these records and this data, is that they have this, like, obsession with archiving, right? This whole idea that, like, you know, we can't be deletionists. We have to keep everything on the Internet. And the courts have agreed with this, right? So they say... There's this this big case. Uh, it was in Connecticut. This woman, her kids were growing pot in the basement or something, right? So the, her and her sons get arrested. Well, they drop the charges against mom. And uh, in Connecticut, you automatically get your dismissal expunged. Well, these local blogs and papers put her mug shut up. They're writing about it. She's like, you got to make them take this down. The court said, no. The legal reality is you are never arrested. You can go tell a judge, I was never arrested. It's been expunged. The historical fact of your arrest, that's real. And the media, writ large, is allowed to report on that. And we're sorry that it shows up in Google search results, but that's a Google problem. Then Google says, well, we can't change the historical record either. This is freedom of speech. This is, they uh, invoke the Communications Decency Act 230. You know, we're just, we're a platform. And so everyone kind of backs away from taking any responsibility, and they use this preservationist argument. But why do we want, like, the criminal justice system or Google to create our memories. That's a lot of stock to put into some big tech companies. And 
And I had never, I never thought that line of thinking would somehow crisscross with my interest in criminal justice, but but here we are. <laughs> it does, though. I mean, and then, then you wonder, what's the answer? Is it for them not to remember or for us to create competing memory structures? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting uh, question, too, because what you're kind of getting at is, like, should we... You know, my, my friends that are activists, I work with these with these two guys, Paolo and Scott, and uh, they together we're running this kind of right to remove thing. We're just trying to raise awareness about um, do you have a right to remove or to delist information that shows up online? This is what in the EU it's called the right to be forgotten. And it's now it's now a law. It's a regulation. And if we don't have that right in the U.S., should we create noise? Should we just, you know, right. I've interviewed people who have who have uh, started a bunch of blogs about the show Arrested Development so that if you Google their name and Arrested, it'll a bunch of like fan pages will come up and then their arrest record will show up on the third page. Right. At least. And so it's like there's these kind of, you know, uh, interesting strategies that people have started to employ because there isn't. You don't have a, a right to to kind of work on your uh, digital reputation in the way that, that you do in other places. Which creates such a sense of vulnerability and precarity for everybody, though. Yes. And then it's like, well, you know, there but for the grace of God go I. In some ways, it makes the situation worse because if we're all so afraid to get tagged somehow, then we're all going to be extra quiet about it. Yeah. I mean, if you look at you know, some of like, there's some really brilliant legal writing on the Fourth Amendment and and about government surveillance. And my favorite versions of that is 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 when they talk about how much this will limit self-expression, right? And so if we use the First Amendment to say that websites should be able to post your mugshot, you know, well, if we care that much about self-expression, why are we not allowing people some control over their identity at the same time? There there is a middle ground. Um, there's a lot of of policy changes that could happen at both very local levels and very high levels that could ease the pain of this without violating constitutional rights. I mean, there is a path out. And are you trying to work on that? We are. So we're we're constantly trying to push um, Google to allow people to ask for content like that to be removed. And so we're encouraging people to do it. So Google does take down like revenge porn. They will take down certain types of links, booking photos because they're the public record, they're government records. Um, we haven't had as much luck with, but these 11 to 14 million people a year all send in requests like they have to listen. And this is just so it doesn't get listed as a link. It's not like the site's not still there. Right, because it can be very difficult to try to convince law enforcement or courts to uh, take their information away from the public. That being said, there are jurisdictions that have decided this isn't a good idea. There's um, some states that if you actually look at their statute that governs criminal record information, the irony of this is to get someone's actual criminal record of convictions, it's almost impossible in the U.S. Those are still protected by states, right? So, so, but we're... There's a case in Pennsylvania right now that's testing this idea that if a local law enforcement agency publishes booking photos, does that violate the Pennsylvania statute about protecting criminal record information? So the defendant there is arguing, yes, it does. This feels like a criminal record. It's being leveraged against me like it's a criminal record. Why wouldn't this go into your category of criminal records? So we're waiting to see how that how that shakes out next year. So you as a person decided that the best path for you, I mean, so you were, you're incensed by what's going on, uh, uh, I guess in some ways inspired by your, at least the freshness or, or what you're discovering that's, that and you're able to unearth. And you decided to then 
become like a PhD. Yeah. And a professor and stuff. Yeah. So are you the first PhD in your family? I am. Yeah. Yeah. In my immediate family, I am. I um. And where'd you go for that? So I went to the University of Minnesota. I grew up in Minneapolis, and I and I went to college in St. Louis, and then I came back to Minneapolis for graduate school. And well, I came back for that job and that AmeriCorps position because I figured if I was going to do this kind of service work, I, I felt compelled to do it in my hometown. And and I also, as like I said earlier, I didn't understand the scope of mass incarceration truly until I read the job description of this nonprofit and they put some statistics in there. Uh. So I thought I was going to go into global public health and I just suddenly felt very sick about this thing that was happening where I lived. And Minnesota has extreme racial disparities in in, in how people are are sentenced and and sent to prison. So. It's a very white state, but a very, very, very black prison population compared to the state population. So I just felt compelled to go there. And, and I had the good luck of meeting a lot of really inspiring people who were working on these issues, but from all these different ways. So lobbyists and local politicians and researchers. And I decided that I wanted to sort of build some of my own legitimacy and figure out how to do research in a way that I could use evidence to try to change conversations mm-hmm. or try to change a policymaker's mind. And it just sort of felt like good information could be the key to, to pushing for social change. I mean, there's a lot of paths one can take. And, and I think this has suited me also because when I started this project, you know, my colleagues were like, what is, what is this mugshot website? Like, why do you care about this? This is just some fringy... You know, and, and, and it was hard to start the project at first because no one wanted to talk to me because they were terrified I was like some mugshot website extortionist person that was just trying to, right. I mean, to get people to be interviewed for the book was really hard. Again, like they're opting out, right? They're not some strangers emailing them about their booking phone. No way, right? right. So so the one of the nice things about being an academic is you get to choose your projects and then and then try to engage other people in the work um, by by coming and talking to students or going to town halls or or getting involved with cases that are happening. So that's sort of how I've tried to navigate that. And how did like how did Rutgers find you or did you find them? Rut- <laughs> oh, it's because like, it's like in different areas. I can't yeah. see. I wouldn't see like a university saying, "Oh, we want someone who's gonna someone specializing in criminal justice data." Right. You know? Right. There's it's, an opening. It's quite narrow. <laughs> yeah. So I I was trained as a sociologist, which is a wonderful discipline. So you like no numbers and statistics. Yeah, I was much more of a qualitative researcher. You yeah. know, so I was a field worker and right. I did field work at expungement clinics. I was trying to still understand this whole criminal records thing. And uh, and for your listeners, expungement is you know you file petition to have an old conviction erased from your record. Um, it does not address your online records. Though. Right. It's just your state record. Um, and so I I decided to, to try to work at a criminal justice school because I wanted to work with people that might disagree with my views on this. So I work with police agencies and prosecutors and my colleagues do research with them. And so I think it pushes me a little bit to try to be more balanced and, and just thoughtful about all these different angles. Um, and, and I work in Newark and it's a fascinating city with its own history. And, and so it's been really, really good for me to just learn that and to, and to think about how different states treat this issue really differently. And so I, I don't know, Rutgers hired me. I, I mean, I, I think they were excited to have someone who was interested in figuring out how technology is changing these things that we know about criminal punishment and, and to try to do that in a kind of a, a grounded way to really get into the field and try to understand how these changes um, are happening. Because it's an interesting, I mean, Rutgers is becoming a really interesting place. Barbara Ehrenreich is there doing mm. the, the 
the what's like that witnessing poverty kind mm-hmm. of the economic hardship project. You got Chinjari there. Uh, it's I a mean, fabulous gosh. institution. Yeah, it's sort of it's like this proximity to New York City kind of intellectual culture, but. But New Jersey, it's its own context. I mean, learning the state politics in New Jersey took me like two years, right? When I started. We were in the land of Chris Christie, for <laughs> yeah, God's sake. It's just a lot. And, you know, Cory Booker was the mayor of Newark. And so I was there during the transition to Mayor Baraka. And, and he's very interested in criminal justice reforms. So, so it's just been, there's a lot of things happening um, there. And so they've been really supportive of what, you know, a few years ago was called this very fringy project. And, and now it's building some legitimacy. And when and when you when you look at the overall situation, do you see it as sort of? I mean, it's almost using my my theater background. Is it man against man, man against nature, man against? I mean, what? Who do we blame? I mean, it doesn't. It seems like I mean, while there there are people who may be a little bit lazy or a little bit asleep at the wheel, it's not like it's some evil people maintaining this tragedy of of data it's like these these systems that have just sort of evolved or 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 been set in place and a little bit unconsciously and then exacerbated by technologies we don't fully understand and now we're just sort of in it there's kind of two parts to that the first is you're right it's a very diffused system so not only is it the localized criminal justice system so you know i've been I always tell my students, criminal justice is not a system. It's 3,000 county-level systems, right? And they each have their own politics and messiness and people who have worked there forever and don't want to change and people who are reforming at the same time and there's boundary maintenance. And and that means there's uneven production of this information. There's this uneven patchwork of data coming out. And so to hold, you know, what system do you hold accountable for the production side? Well, 3,000 little systems. So you start there. So then you're like, oh, gosh, this is kind of confusing. <laughs> and then and then you have the, the people who have capitalized on that unevenness and kind of capitalized on how criminal justice didn't, systems didn't understand technological systems, right? And, and they've used that to create this big audience of people that want this information and feed it to them. And so is it the technology itself? No, I never think it's the technology. It's always the people behind it, right? And and it's not deterministic. And I think to denaturalize that process of this was the inevitable outcome is really important. It's not. It's a bunch of small little political choices. Um, and now we've got this this push towards all this integration of, of, of data sets, of types of data. And it just, it, criminal justice has gotten swept into that in a strange way. And, and to be fair, for the people who work in criminal justice, like, they're busy. It's hard for them to deal with. They yeah. can't go. Who's like? If I'm a prosecutor in Philly, can I really deal with Google? I mean, no. I'm just. Or if I'm a defense attorney in Newark, I've got a lot on my plate that day, and it's not. It's not my. Right. my and you're already mugshot. fighting through some obsolete Oracle product de- database just to get your through your day. Right. Right. That's you know? exactly right. <laughs> yes. Yes. And so, and so I think that there's there's some glimmer here that that comes up in conversation for me a glimmer of hope that if we can't forget right so if we give up on the forgetting and there's okay. no really we can't seal we can't okay but can we forgive can we have a more humane approach to what the criminal justice system is it, both to the people that work in it and the people that are processed through it can we treat it like what it really is is a giant not great social welfare program and can we can we use the mark of a record the way we might use the the quote unquote mark of like a medical record or or a, a public benefits record or just is there a way that enough people will be impacted by this contact theory we've done some some 
public opinion polls on this. And if you know someone who's been arrested and you've, and you've witnessed them deal with this mugshot racket or you've witnessed them deal with this background check problem, your, your views change. You know, you become right. a lot more forgiving. And, and so, Not at the beginning. First, right, you think, right. oh, shoot, yes. my neighbor was arrested. Oh, keep the kids away from them, honey. Right, Maybe we should right. put up bigger shrubs. Yeah, and then and you're then like you having a beer out. with the guy right. and he's like, I lost my job. And you're like, right. well, that doesn't seem like it fits the fact that you, you know. Stole Whatever. a loaf of bread. Sure, right. <laughs> and so, and 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 of course, right. there's there's always you know people who commit serious crimes, and and it's a different conversation for whether prison is the place for people who have been have ended up in that kind of situation. Um, but we're talking about millions and millions of people who are are very everyday people who right. have brushes with the justice system or live in places where brushes with the system happen a lot, but they don't result in anything. And so I just, I wonder, and I kind of hope in a way that if we can't hold government or Google or anyone fully responsible for this, maybe we can just change the way we think about it. So it's almost like, I mean, when you say forgiveness, and and it's the last chapter of the book, which I really like, or the conclusion, mm-hmm. uh, you in some ways you mean slack. Yeah, in that's other a words, great point. <laughs> yeah. If, if everything's going to be, if data's going to tighten everything so much that everybody's accountable for everything— Okay, if we accept that, then the only possible choice for human beings to survive in a world of infinite accountability is slack, mm-hmm. is, is okay, so, because where's, otherwise, where are we going to ease up on them? We're just going to get crushed under this. Right, right. And if it's, and if it's not this thing, it's something else, right? If it's, it's not this car, database, it's, car, it's another or one. Or it's your car payment, or you're yeah. this, or you're that. It's like, yes, I missed a payment. Does mm-hmm. that mean my life is over now? Right. That's that's it. The accountability is unrealistic to sort of how dynamic life is supposed to be. And 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 how I, I just don't think that these these complicated systems should be a barometer of worth right. in any way. I mean, I guess my impulse is always toward the Trumpian. It's like towards fake news. Make, you know, like you're saying, make noise. It's like, well, if they're going to do this, let's, you know, (laughs) let's call the yes man in and, you know, create a billion fake entries of criminal record justice stuff online and just break the whole thing. But, um, I mean, Slack seems to be a smarter. I like that a lot. A smarter, a smarter path. I mean, because, because. The, th- the thing I keep thinking is that, and the reason why I love this as an example, is we are all, as humans, we're we're moving into a, an increasingly digital age, and we're all increasingly imprisoned by data, yeah. and by there's things that there's metrics for get addressed, things that there's no metrics for just fall through the cracks. They're not even there anymore, and it's and there's so much pain, suffering, and human experience. It's not being registered by any of these things, mm-hmm. and and. The thing I, I mean, the thing that that draws me to your work is that instead of it being, you know, some privileged media theorist pining for, you know, the soft, squishy humanity in the face of, of you know, top-down tyranny of technology, it's like, no, 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 there are real human day-to-day consequences. This person can't get a job. This person can't get food. This person can't get a relationship because of the 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 oppressive nature of of indelible data mm-hmm. it is real people and it's, and it's real people having a, a bad day right let's have a little bit of let's be a little more gentle with that you know it's you're not getting arrested on a daily you just like had a you know, went to work and drove home and went to bed you know it's 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 not a it's it's a traumatizing day and so to just kind of leverage that and to make fun of people for it and to and to use these pictures and 
in the way that we do, I mean, it, it really taps into kind of this pain that I think people have and that they channel through through things like these records or these mugshots. And and that's sort of been um, a really hard thing to to think through because it's because the people who who are impacted by it, they feel that too. They know it's not just like an employer. It's it's that people who they love judge them in this in this way. Well, we're afraid of people. We're afraid of these things happening to us. So we're going to stigmatize them even further. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, you know, my friend, uh, you know, Larry Smith, his 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 wife stupidly did this drug thing. And then they made that movie. I mean, she has this TV show about her now, Orange is the New Black. And it was sort of like, oh, my God. And at the beginning, when you hear that, and as our friends heard that she had been arrested for this thing, People distanced from them initially yeah, as if we didn't know them or something. It's like, no, she did that stupid thing. It's still the same (laughs) person. It's like, what are you thinking? That's right. That's right. You know, I often wonder if this this continued uptick in media about criminal justice might help with this kind of forgiveness or this slack in a way where the more people watch documentaries or watch TV shows or, or listen to podcasts about how the criminal justice system works, I am hopeful that that'll introduce some healthy skepticism and and this blind faith we have in the justice system to tell us whether or not our friend is a good person or not. Right. And it doesn't necessarily have to take the form of hitting the streets and protesting against the data, blah, 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 but just uh, 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 softening the repercussions of it. It's funny, uh, that prayer, there's this, I'm not being so Jewish now because it's (laughs) Rosh Hashanah. But there's this prayer they do on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur called the Unatana Tokef. And it's the one where they say, between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, it, it is written who will live and who will die. It's about this whole book of life, about what gets written. And it's like so friggin' scary. What do you mean that God's like up there writing who's going to die or who's going to be damned, who's going to be sick and all that? But the very last line of the poem is like basically says, oh, and all we can do is, is, is our compassion for one another is the only thing that can lessen the decree. Which is what you're saying. It's like the, that. Finally, the ruach, that the, 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 our compassion for one another, to give each other slack on this. And we're all people. We all make mistakes. It could have been you. I had pot in my car that same day that you got arrested for it. But mm-hmm. you know, so if we can see that, I mean, gosh, that'll trickle up to everything. Not just criminal justice, but this whole ridiculous accusatory world that we seem to be living in now. Mm-hmm. That's really beautiful. Yeah, I, uh, I I completely agree. And 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 even though I'm you know knee deep, neck deep in all this kind of <laughs> difficult stuff and people's difficult stories, I I I maintain some hope. And I and I think that um, having conversations with people, this is you know being a field worker, being a sociologist, talking to hundreds of people about this. I think humanity will will win in some ways. We just need to we just need to not be afraid to get there. Oh, thank you. Thank you for being on Team Human. It's an Um, honor. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining Team Human. Our guest today has been sociologist and criminal justice scholar Sarah Loggison, whose book, Digital Punishment, Uses and Abuses of Criminal Records in the Big Data Age, will be coming out next year. You can find out more about Sarah's work at sarahloggison.com. We'll be back in the Basement Media Squad here at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism again next week with new strategies for human intervention in the machine. 
come visit us at teamhuman.fm, where you'll find more information about our supporters and guests, the work they're doing, and ways to find the others. Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.